You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay. Okay, good afternoon. One of the things today is actually a double Torah reading because the Torah reading of Chukas and Balak is together. We're going to have it again in two weeks when the last two Torah readings in the Book of Numbers. This week we actually catch up to the land of Israel because Shavuos in Israel is only one day, by us is two days. So we, we were reading the Torah reading for Shavuot and they were reading already the following Torah reading. This week that we have two Torah readings, they only have one, so we actually catch up and we'll be reading the same Torah reading. We read the Torah reading of Chukas and Balak, and they only read Balak. Just a quick synopsis of what the Torah reading is all about, and then we'll get into the actual uh, meat of the class, which is uh, the Torah reading begins by telling us the laws pertaining to the red heifer, then it skips 37 years, or skips or goes a span of 37 years to the end of the life of Aaron, Miriam, and when Moses and Aaron were punished and not allowed to go into the land of Israel for striking the rock, it goes then into the following Torah reading to the story of Balak, where Balak, after, at the end of the Torah reading, tells us where Moses wages wars for the Jewish people against the great mighty cities of Sichon and Og. And then we move into while they see that Sichon and Og were conquered by the Jewish people, the nation of Midian and the Moabites decide that they're going to hire a non-Jewish prophet to try to curse the Jewish people, which ends up being the greatest blessings for the Jewish people. So that's both Torah readings in a very short one-minute line. But one of, the, one of the things we find in general in Judaism, and which is the concept of the influence of a tzaddik. The influence of a tzaddik in this world, not only while they're alive, but even after their passing. As we know, going back to the story of the spies that we just read about a few weeks ago, Caleb who was amongst the spies to go check out the land of Israel, why did he not join the plot of the spies? So we know Joshua was blessed by Moses, but Caleb went to the burial place of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the cave of the patriarchs, which because of that saved him when he prayed from the scouts' plan of bringing the fruit and talking evil, and therefore he was one of the only ones besides Joshua that entered into the land of Israel from that era. But in fact, we find many times, in many places, but that's the first that we see clearly, but throughout Jewish history, and even today, people go every like Bomer to Miron, or going to the gravesite, and the concept of a tzaddik being an influence on his followers or people that are connected with him, is something which we find very often in Judaism, and it's something which is a common thread brought in the Zohar and especially in the mystical works how the influence of a tzaddik even after his passing has a great influence on his followers and those connected with him. The reason being is because the immortality of the soul of the tzaddik, the fact that the tzaddik soul is something that lives on and just like a shepherd who never uh, lets go of his sheep and will always be there to take care of his people from beginning to end, so too a tzaddik is considered a shepherd of the Jewish people, caring for his flock, and thereby, no matter what happens to them, he's always there with them. We will see this from an anecdote, 
an episode that happens in the Talmud and a dialogue between one of the great scholars of the Talmud named Rabbi Yeshua and a dialogue that he has with the people of Alexandria. But first, let's take a little deeper dive into this week's Torah reading. And this week's Torah reading begins with a law, and in fact, the entire name of the Torah reading means statutes, because it's going to tell us about the law pertaining the laws of the red heifer, which is called Echuka. Just a little uh, introduction. In the Torah, there are three types of laws. There are laws which are statutes, meaning laws that we don't have a rationale for. There are laws which are called testimony, for example, Shabbat, that there's a rationale, but the rationale only came about because the Torah told me to do it. So because God rested on the seventh day, therefore we rest on the seventh day. We mount some Passover because the Jewish people fled Egypt. So we understand the reason behind it, but it's a testimony to an event that occurred. Then there is something called Mishpatim, which are simplistic laws that the terminology the Talmud says, that even if the Torah hasn't been given, we would still be keeping those laws, for example, not to kill, not to steal, proper behaviors, ethics or morals, and so on. The Torah reading is called Chukat, which means a statute, a law which there is no rationale for. The common example is, for example, not to mix your bar garment with wool and linen. There's no reason for it. There's no rationale behind it. Laws of purity and impurity. The laws of kosher. Those are all chukim. Those are laws which are beyond reason. One such law is a law that's discussed at length at the beginning of this week's Torah reading, which is a law pertaining to the red heifer. And the, the law pertaining to the red heifer is that if a person becomes impure because of touching a corpse or because he came in contact with a person that touched a corpse, and there's different levels of impurity, but the, on the most basic level, if a person came in contact with, uh, contact with a dead body, he then needs to be sprinkled with the blood of the red heifer that was mixed with ash, and then every, the third day and the seventh day, he was then sprinkled with his blood. The Kohen, who sprinkled the individual who was impure, also became impure just for one day, and that's the way the process went for a person to become pure from touching a dead body. If you recall when we spoke about the holiday of Pesach Sheni, how Pesach Sheni came about, which was the second Passover, was because there were people that were impure of touching a dead corpse. They did not have a chance to be able to be sprinkled by the red heifer, so therefore they were still impure, so they couldn't come to bring a Paschal offering. If a person's impure, he cannot eat from sacrifices. If he's a Kohen, he cannot eat any of the holy foods. And there's a lot of different... Uh, limitations to a person who's impure besides for the fact that anything he touches also can become impure as well. So that's the entire a, idea of what the beginning of this Torah reading talks about. The question however is why over here in the middle of the story of after we learn about the story of the scouts, the story of Korach and all of a sudden we start having the law about the red heifer. As we mentioned earlier, this Torah reading spans 37 years to the end of the life of Miriam and Aaron, but in between, God places the law about the red heifer. In fact, the law of the red heifer was said way earlier. One of the first laws that were given to the Jewish people even before the Torah was given, was given them three laws, and it said, well, it gave them Shabbos, the laws of Shabbos, that was the only Shabbos that the Jewish people actually kept, the laws of Parah Aduma, which is the red heifer, and the laws of respecting one's parents and keeping justice. And the question then is, if the laws of the red heifer were already given way earlier in the book of Exodus, not only that, the Jewish people had to know about the laws of the red heifer, because as we discussed about the Paschal offering, and in the second year of them coming out of Egypt, there were people that were impure who had to use the red heifer to be able to 
purify themselves to bring the Paschal offering. That means the Jewish people already knew about its law. To the extent that it tells us that God told Moses to teach the Jewish people about the red heifer when they put up, but the first time they put up the tabernacle, that they should know about the laws and then ultimately implement the laws because somebody who was impure was not allowed to walk into the tabernacle or even its whole area or bring a sacrifice. So why then, all of a sudden, in the middle of the book of Numbers, right before the Jewish people are about to enter the land of Israel, does it start telling us again about the law of the red heifer? And the Talmud tells us something very fascinating here. And the Talmud asks the question, why is the death of Miriam juxtaposed to the laws of the red heifer? And the Talmud tells us and says as follows, just like the verse wants to teach you, that just like the red heifer atones for a person's sins, so too the death of the righteous atoned for the people's sins. The Talmud over here is telling us something unique about when it comes to a person who is righteous, a tzaddik when they pass on. It's telling us that even after the passing of a righteous person, they are still in effect changing and helping the people of their time. Then Miriam and Aaron are about to pass on. You'd think, okay, history happened, Miriam and Aaron were great people, let's move on. But the Torah says no. Just like the red heifer, who atones for the sins of people, so too, even after a tzaddik's passing, Miriam and Aaron, per se, in our, this week's Torah reading, they also atone for their sin. Meaning the life of the tzaddik continues on, even after their passing. Though they're not here in the physical life, but their spiritual uh, effect and ramification that it has upon the people who had it connected with them is above and beyond, and therefore it still affects the people with them. Understanding this objective, taking this point, let's go back to what we mentioned before about the Talmudic adage and story about Rabbi Yeshua. Who is Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya? Let's give a little just an introduction about who he was. He was one of the very great scholars of the Mishnah. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya was one of the students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was one of the foremost scholars at the time at the end of the uh, Second Temple. And he would enumerate, as we look at ethics of our fathers, about the greatness about each one of his students. When he enumerates the great quality of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, he says, Ashrei Yeladatai Loki is the one who gave him birth to him. That means as a mere being, he was an unbelievable scholar, he was a genius in all aspects of the Torah, not only in aspects of the Torah, but he was a person who was disciplined in his behavior, moral, ethical, upstanding individual, religious and observant to the greatest. He was a person who was thorough and knowledgeable in many different varieties of life and philosophies and studies of the time. He was an individual who was uh, thorough in 70 languages, therefore he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He knew astronomy, mathematics, astrology. And as well, he was one of the advisors in the courtyard of Adrian the king. They would constantly bring him for debates with the scholars of Athens. And he would always have different debates. And I don't know if you recall, many year, a few years ago we had uh, great debates in the Talmud, which was discussing the debates how he would answer and code and debate and debacle their whole um, theory, whatever it was. And he was very well known that he had to debate these people to protect the Jewish people. And the great philosophers of the time. One of the great discussions that are mentioned about the debates that Rabbi Yeshua had 
are in the last pages of the Talmud between Rabbi Yeshua and the people of Alexandria. Who is Alexandria? Alexandria, as you know, is a place of Egypt. Alexandria at the time is what you would call the epic center of knowledge, wisdom, monarch of uh, influence in the world. At that time, Alexandria was a place who had the largest library in the world, for example. Alexandria was a place that people would come, you know, had a university, people would study. Great scholars as Euclidus and uh, great philosophers all studied all in Alexandria. The great scholars of Athens, that's where they would hang out. They were one of the people who built big towers. You know, they were very well known in their influence and affluence in the people of Alexandria. As you can imagine, because of its influence and affluence and scholarly works, who does it attract? Jewish people. Especially as at that time, Jerusalem was on its downturn because of the infighting between the different tribes and sects and between the wealthy and the not and those that wanted to go against the Roman revolt and all the different infighting that existed within Jerusalem, there were many Jews who decided to relocate from Jerusalem and go and find a better life, if you want to call it, in Alexandria. Their rationale was, even though the prohibition against returning to Egypt, they said, well, it's only temporary, so therefore we can go there temporarily until things calm down, be out of harm's way, so to speak, and this way we'll be able to uh, have a better life in Alexandria. Their choice was mistaken because even there, once the temple was destroyed, the Romans came to Alexandria, made a pogrom there, and destroyed everybody that was there as well. So they were not saved from the dangers that the Jewish people went through. At that point, Rabbi Shua ben Hananiah was went to Alexandria, and the people there asked him numerous questions, 12 to be exact, that the, Torah, that the Talmud enumerates there. And the Talmud enumerates that they asked questions in every genre of Torah learning, whether it was an agadic, halachic, biblical, Talmudic, all different types of questions. But then they also asked three questions, which some were terminology and called it burais, which literally translates as nonsense. Others want to say the word bor comes from questions that refer to uh, burial issues or life and death issues, but not necessarily life and death if they should but more death about what's going on in the ground. And the Talmud tells us as follows, and here are their questions. Three questions that they asked, one from the 12 that we're going to talk about today. Question number one. The wife of Lot, who turned into salt, does she consider a corpse that makes somebody impure? Or do we say she's not a corpse because she's only a pillar of salt? So does she make something impure or doesn't she make something impure? Rabbi Yeshua responds to them and says, a dead body can make something impure, a salt does not make somebody impure. That's his answer. Question number two. They ask, the son of the Shunamis child, if you recall during the story of um, Elisha, he would go and stay in a woman's home, and he was very thankful that she made this home and this uh, place for him to stay. And she asked, he asked the woman, what can I bless you with? So she said, bless me with a child. When the child was about two years old, the child uh, died. And she went to the Elisha and said, I asked you for a child, but not a dead child. What do you give me a dead child for? Why do you make my life even worse? So he first sent the servant Gehazi to go put a staff on him. It didn't work because since Gehazi put it on a dog, he didn't trust his teacher. And because of that, he was punished. But then Elijah the prophet went himself and brought the child back to life. And the question that the people of Alexandria asked is this child, the son of the Shunamis, does he 
we make somebody impure because technically he was dead, he was just revived. Or is he considered a live person because he was revived? Rabbi Yeshua answered, clearly, a dead person can make somebody impure, a live person doesn't make somebody impure. And finally, they asked one more question. And the question said as follows, when Mashiach comes, we are told that the dead people are going to come back to life. When these dead people come back to life, are they going to need to be sprinkled by the blood of the red heifer? Are they considered live people and therefore don't need any purification? Or are they considered dead people and therefore they need purification? What does Rabbi Yeshua answer? He says, listen here. When the time comes, we'll become smart and we'll figure it out. And he says, not only that, who is going to be amongst the people that are going to be resurrected? Moshe. That was his answer. Now, if you look at these questions, these questions weren't just riddles that they were trying to test Rabbi Yeshua. In fact, these questions had very much weight in them. They were powerful questions that they were asking Rabbi Yeshua about themselves. And over here we're talking about these questions that the people of Alexandria were actually asking Rabbi Yeshua very radical questions that affected about their lives. Because these people were not living in Jerusalem at the time. They came to a place of influence and affluence to be able, if you want to call, to assimilate. To be like the people of Alexandria. And many of them became wealthy and affluent as well. It says there was a synagogue in Alexandria that to walk from one end to the other, you started davening on one end, you finished on the other. And that's how big it was. If you wanted to know where the chasm was up to, they would put up a flag so they should know what place in the davening he was up to because it was so big. So there was lots of Jewish people there, lots of influence and affluence there as well. But their question to the, uh, was as follows. Rabbi Yeshua, we know we're not allowed to be back in Egypt. We're only here temporarily. But the bottom line is, we're here. And we're making a good living for ourselves. What are we compared to? What are we considered? Did we do something wrong? Are we still connected? Are we dead or are we alive? Are we connected to the source of life, which is God, even though we left Israel? Or have we assimilated and therefore we're impure, we're considered dead and disconnected and disoriented? And therefore the first question they ask is the first human being that changed from being human to the furthest thing from being human, a pillar of salt. What happened to her? Is she considered alive? Is she considered dead? When a person goes through a transformation, is their original state of being still existent or is that state of being all of a sudden dissipate? And what does he tell them? What does he answer? She's salt. Her original state, though God created her a human being, but because of her actions, she now became salt. She now took on a whole new existence, and therefore, that's what she's considered. The answer to their question was very clear. The change may be only external, that you live in Alexandria, but who are you? Right now, where are you? You are now in a place of Egypt, you're not in Jerusalem. Rabbi Yeshua tells them, a dead person makes him pure, but not a pillar of salt. She, the woman of Lot, lost her image. She became a whole new idea. She became a new entity. Because she did not retain anything of previously. If we retain a previous identity, then we're something different. 
but the wife of Lot lost her complete identity. As the commentary on the Talmud says that you may think that just because she changed into a pillar of salt, but because she was initially flesh and blood, she should make things impure. And what does Rabbi, Aki, Rabbi Yeshua answer them? No, a pillar of salt does not make something impure. Because God changed this person, changed this individual, it became a complete change, a new entity, and therefore now she doesn't make something impure. So they tried again, asking a question from a different angle. Instead of taking an extreme of a person who was a f- person of flesh and blood and became a new entity, they took a ch- person who was a flesh of blood, died and came back into the same exact entity. Which entity does this individual ch- hold? Does this child, is this child still considered a dead child because ultimately he died? Or do I say this child is a live child because Alicia brought him back alive? What does this mean to us as the people who left Egypt as well? That we came back to a new different type of life. It's a new life, the people of Alexandria. We may have gone through, yes, we were dead, so to speak, but now we have a new life. Which one does it go by? How do we determine it? What did Elisha do? Elisha brought this child back to life. So too also these individuals, they've started a new energy, a new life. What happens now? Rabbi Yeshua explains to them and says, only if a person's dead, they're the impure. The bottom line is they created a new entity and because it's a new entity, this is now a life which has no connection with what happened previously. So too he tells these individuals, you have no connection to what happened previously. You created a new life for yourself here. Whether right, wrong, or indifferent, that's now you have to prove yourself. We then come to the third question. And the third question which he asks them, a little more detail, but this question he doesn't answer. The question he asks them and he says, what's going on over here? They ask when they come back alive in the time of the world to come, will the dead people have to be sprinkled by the red heifer? What does he answer? He doesn't answer the question. Instead of answering the question, he says, when they become alive, we'll become smart and we'll know the answer. When they become alive, Moshe will be with them and will answer the question. What's going on over here? What's happening here? What's their question and what's he answering? Why does Rabbi Yeshua give them such a weird answer? Could you just say, I don't know the answer. Ask a rabbi that knows the answer. When they become alive, we'll become smart. Moshe will come, we'll ask him then. Also in general, in Talmudic text, when we don't know an answer to something, there's a verse, there's a, ver- there's a verb or a word that's used, teku. Elijah the prophet will come, you'll ask him the question. Over here he doesn't say Elijah the prophet. He says Moses. Not only that, why does he say when, Mesh- when, the, when the dead will be resurrected, we'll become smart. Just say, when they will be resurrected, we'll find out. When we'll become smart. Or say, when they become dead, we'll ask them. So there was a great rabbi who lived about 150 years ago. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Ettlinger, from the great rabbis of Germany. And he asked the following question, and he said that this question that, that they were asking is a little bit deeper. Because every single person that passes away, there's one part of their body that doesn't pass away, which is the loose bone, which is the marrow of the spine, called loose. In fact, it says that when we bow by modem, with the prayers, and we bow while we say the prayers, it says a person who bows, that he makes sure his spine bends, so to speak, that makes the Moshiach comes, that marrow should be able to be rebuilt. 
Over here he tells them, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? It says in the Talmud that God's going to rebuild the individual from the loose bone. From the marrow that it's going to be rebuilt. And the question is, now, the people that come back alive, what's their question? Are they considered dead people because since they were rebuilt from the loose bone? So therefore technically was dead. Or do we say because they were rebuilt and the only part that was left was the loose bone, so therefore they're considered live people and they're not considered impure. Which one is it? And it doesn't go back to what it was initially and now they're a new identity. The question is, if it's a new bone, if it's a new entity, what's the doubt? Why are they impure? That's restructured, it's a whole new person. Just because they have in it a marrow bone, the loose bone, just because it went through some type of surgery, because it touched it, so therefore it becomes impure. What's happening here? And really what's happening over here is, all the things that Rabbi Yeshua is answering, he's not answering for them, but Rabbi Yeshua is actually telling them a message for the Jewish people for eternity. He's explaining to them what happened then, and what happens with every single tzaddik. Because if you look at his answer, he says, when Moshe will be, res- when they will be resurrected, Moshe will be with them. He doesn't say Moshe's going to answer. He says Moshe will be with them. What's it telling us here? And in the Rebbe's great explanation, making a siyum as he was discussing the tractate of Talmud, the Rebbe went at length to explain and expand this discussion. And he says, listen here, the people of Alexandria were not fools by any stretch of the imagination. They knew exactly what's happening here. They were students and children of Shimon Sadik from the greatest high priest of people that were in the Sanhedrin. What they were talking about over here is a specific human creation, a specific part of the Jewish nation. The part of the Jewish nation of the people of the Midbar Desert which according to some, because of their sins with the scouts and they did not want to go into the land of Israel, they lost their ability to have a portion in the world to come. And therefore, not only did they not enter into the land of Israel, but they were punished according to Rabbi Akiva that they would not go into the world to come. And the question over here that the people of Alexandria was asking, is it true that these individuals, if they don't have a portion in the world to come, so then, what is this earth? If they're not going to be resurrected, what's this earth worthwhile? What's the purpose of it? Why is it there? Then it's only impurity. Or do we say that they're going to be resurrected and rebuilt and therefore it is considered of life? What their question was even deeper. When a Jew passes on and all that's left is maybe that marrow, and then that person is going to be resurrected in the time of the coming of Mashiach. What does that mean for that individual? Are they a new entity? Or are they the same person that's just coming back rejuvenated? What is it with that individual? Is that, and they're asking a technical thing, is it a new entity that's not going to be rebuilt? Or is it that loose bone that's going to sprout bones and who knows what's going to happen? So therefore Rabbi Yeshua answers two questions. You're asking me a technical issue. How is the person going to rebuild when the time of the coming of Mashiach? When the time will come, we'll be smart. What does it mean we'll be smart? We'll look and see what happens. And we'll figure it out then. And to the second question, 
What's going to happen to them? How was it that they were in the desert? What does it mean to a Jew that we say he doesn't have a portion in the world to come? Of here he answers something deeper. He says, Moshe will be with them. What does he mean Moshe will be with them? In this week's Torah reading, we find that Moshe is punished because of the hitting of the rock. Moshe, therefore, is buried in the land of, in the desert and now doesn't go into the land of Israel. What was God saying? God is telling the Jewish people, in the desert you'll never be alone. Moshe doesn't let the Jewish people be alone. He said, if they're going to be killed in the desert, I'm going to be buried in the desert. I'm going to be with the Jewish people throughout their 3,000 years of exile. I'm going to be with them at all times because when they're going to be resurrected, I will be there with them. What Moshe was telling the Jewish people, what Rabbi Yeshua was telling the people of Alexandria, that a tzaddik, even after his passing, is there together with his flock and does not let go of his flock for any moment. As dark and as gloom as it may be, to the extent that they may be not even having a portion in the world to come, but their leader, their Moshe, is there with them in every every step of the game. It's an example that's given, the Medrash says, in the book of Deuteronomy, says, imagine a person lost a few coins. Nobody wants to help him find it. Eh, a few coins, we'll get another few coins. So all of a sudden he drops a gold coin. People say, wow, there's a gold coin amongst the coins. All of a sudden everybody comes to search because they think there's a bunch of gold coins. The same thing is also God said. If I would have left the people in the desert themselves, eh, who would care? Bunch of little coins, nobody cares. I dropped the gold coin. I left Moshe there with them. All of a sudden, because of Moshe's righteousness, they on their own, maybe they didn't deserve it, but because when they come, wake up in the time of the coming of Moshiach, Moshe's going to be with them, because of Moshe's honor, because of Moshe's merit, all of them will be resurrected as well. This is what Rabbi Yeshua's answer is. This in itself that tells us the concept that the loose bone never rots means not only in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense that every single person, no matter how deep or how far they've gone, has that relationship. That even while they're in the grave, even while they're in the time of past, but because there's a tzaddik that's there with them, protecting them and watching them at all times, they're uplifted. That soul comes together when it comes to the time of the coming of Mashiach. And this we see very clearly in every time and every age. There's a tzaddik, and there, with the influence of a tzaddik, even after his passing, has an effect even in ways that people don't even imagine. I said the story on Shabbos, a fascinating story about a fellow that was going through recovery. A fellow by the name of Eliezer, who grew up in a religious family in Jerusalem, but as he got older in his teenage years, he decided to let go of everything Jewish, decided yeshiva was not for him. He left school, left his parents' home, and at age 20 years old, moved to America, told his parents he's opening up a business, going from here to there and everything else. He lived his life on handouts, going to one Chabadas Kiddush to the next, and was till he was trying to make something of himself, but it wasn't working out. He had no money left, he was on drugs, he was in the pits. He said, he was about to hit rock bottom, he says, you know what, enough lying to my family, I gotta make a mention of myself, he worked some hard jobs, gathered some money together to get a ticket to go back to Jerusalem about five years later. On his way to the airport, he says, you know what, I'm passing the Ohel of the Rebbe, let me go inside, write a letter to the Rebbe for some extra help. 
He decides, he sits down and he takes out a few papers and he writes everything that transpired over the past five years. How he lied to his parents, how he was cheated, how he stole, how he's on drugs, how he, all the downs, all the sides and everything else. He looks over his paper and he says, what? I'm going to read this in front of the Rebbe. I'm not going to share this. Puts the paper in his pocket, walks out and goes, takes the plane, comes back home. He's in Jerusalem for about two, three days. He gets a call from his older sister who was a social worker and says, come meet Eliezer, I want to meet you for lunch. She says, Eliezer, we know exactly what the problem is. We know what you were up to. You know what you went through. And listen here. I'm here to help you. We're going to put you in therapy. We'll get you through this. You'll be all right. She asks, how do you know anything? He says, because when you brought your laundry home, mom was washing your laundry, and in your pants, she found the letter that you wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And today, this fellow... It's clean. He works in the rehab, helping people be in recovery and so on. Even not walking into the oil, he was already helped. The influence of a tzaddik has an effect on every single person. We see this very clearly. There was an interesting debate in the Torah between Yaakov and Yosef. When Yaakov was about to die, he calls over his son Yosef, who was the viceroy of Egypt. And he says, do not bury me in Egypt. So Yosef says, sure. So he says, put your hand on, my, on your, my hip to show me that you're not going to bury me in Egypt. He says, okay. Swear to me you're not going to bury me in Egypt. He swears to him. Yaakov, an old man, gets down onto the floor, bows in front of Yosef, and as the Talmud says, because he wanted to give him and entrust him the energy, that he will actually do it. Why was he afraid of Yosef not doing it? Yosef was a good son, brought his father down to Egypt, treated him like royalty. Why did he think he wasn't going to do it? That he asked him, swear to me, he bows down to him to give him the energy. What's going on over here? And the Rebbe explains, because over here, Yosef and Yaakov had a debate. How does one lead a people? Yosef, if you look at the end of his life, what did Yosef tell his family? They're going to bury me in Egypt. I'm going to be here with you in Egypt. But when you leave, take me with you. What did Yaakov say on the other hand? Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in Israel. This was the difference of opinion between Yosef and Yaakov. Yaakov believed the leader has to be a sign on high. Has to be what you aspire to. Not be in the trenches with the people, but lead from a distance. Yosef believed... To be a leader, you've got to be in the trenches. You've got to be on the wagon together with them waging the war. And therefore Yaakov said, get me out of Egypt. Let me be who I aspire to. Put me in the land of Israel so that people will look forward to coming to the land of Israel. And that's where they want to go to. Yosef said, I'm going to be with the people in the trenches. I'm going to be with them in Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, I leave Egypt. Therefore Yaakov had to make Yosef swear because he was concerned that Yosef himself would try to influence his father or impose his ideas on his father and keep him in Egypt for this extra energy that the Jewish people should have. But in truth, this was not Yosef's own idea. Who was the one that was not buried in the cave of the patriarchs but buried on the side of the road? It was Rachel. Why was Rachel buried on the side of the road? Because she knew that the children of hers are going to be exiled from the land of Israel and on their way out of Jerusalem they can stop at her burial place and pray. She was the one that realized that a leader never leaves his people and is with them in the trenches through the thick and thin. This absolute self-sacrifice, this dedication that Rachel had that she gave up her spot 
in the cave of the patriarchs to be with the Jewish people when they go through the toughest of times. She gave it also to her children. She gave it also to Yosef. This is where the Torah tells us and the prophets say the terminology, the promise that God gives Rachel. I am for sure, I will not withhold your crying. I will answer your prayers. There is reward to your actions. Vishavu banim ligvulam. And their children will return to their homeland. The promise that the Jewish people will ultimately return to their homeland was given to Rachel. Because she was the one that said, I'm with them through thick and thin. This is the Torah telling us. Miriam's juxtaposed to the story of the, of the Paraduma. Just like the red heifer is the one that is able to, to clean, cleanse and, and, uh, and forgive and atone for the sins of the Jewish people. It is the tzaddik of every generation that is there, that assists and helps the Jewish people of their generation. That's with them through the thick and thin. Not just sitting on a distance, but even though we don't see the tzaddik, the influence of the tzaddik, even after their passing, is what transforms, as Miriam in her time, the tzaddik in every time, helps us, get us through the difficult and challenging times, bring us through to the ultimate redemption. As, as Rabbi Yeshua answered the people of Alexandria, Moshe is with them. That's how we know that it's true. They are no longer impure. Because Moshe is with them. That's what gave them the ability to be resurrected. Moshe is with us, which will bring about the ultimate redemption as well.